This is 365 Tech by Suites. Today we are on part 7 of our 12-part exploration through the inevitable, Kevin Kelly's book on understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. Episode 7 is on remixing. Paul Romer is an economist at New York University who specializes in the theory of economic growth. He says that real sustainable economic growth does not stem from new resources, but from existing resources that are rearranged to make them more valuable. Brian Arthur, an economist at the Santa Fe Institute who specializes in the dynamics of technological growth, says that all new technologies derive from a combination of existing technologies. We are in a period of productive remixing where innovators can recombine simple earlier media genres with later complex genres to produce an unlimited number of new media genres. We live in a golden age of new mediums. In the last several decades, hundreds of media genres have been born, remixed out of the old genres. Former mediums such as the newspaper article or a 30-minute TV sitcom or even a four-minute pop song still persist and enjoy immense popularity, but digital technology unbundles those forms into elements so that they can be recombined in new and unique ways. Recent forms include um, a, a web list article or a 140-character tweet storm. Some of these recombined forms are now so robust that they serve as a new genre. These new genres themselves will be remixed, unbundled, and recombined into hundreds of other new genres in the coming decades. Some are already mainstream. They encompass at least a million creators, and hundreds of millions are in their audience. The accelerating fluidity of bits will continue to overtake media for the next 30 years, furthering a great remixing. At the same time as this bit acceleration, the cheap and universal tools of creation such as megapixel phone cameras, YouTube capture, and iMovie are quickly reducing the effort needed to create moving images and are upsetting a great asymmetry that's been inherent in all media. That asymmetry is, it's easier to read a book than to write one, easier to listen to a song than to compose one, and easier to attend a play than to produce one. However, because of new consumer gadgets, community training, peer encouragement, and fiendishly clever software, the ease of making video now approaches the ease of writing. However, our way of writing and creating film is not how Hollywood makes films. A blockbuster film is a gigantic creation uh, built by hand. Like a Siberian tiger, it demands our attention, but it's also very rare. Every year, about 600 feature films are released in North America, or about 1,200 hours of moving images. As a percentage of the hundreds of millions of hours of moving images produced annually today, 1,200 hours is minuscule. If anything, it's an insignificant rounding error. We tend to think that the tiger represents the animal kingdom, but in truth, a grasshopper is a truer statistical example of an animal. The handcrafted Hollywood film is a rare tiger. It won't go away. But if we want to see the future of motion pictures, we need to study the swarming critters below. The jungle of YouTube, indie films, TV serials, documentaries, commercials, infomercials, and insect-scale supercuts and mashups. YouTube videos are viewed more than 12 billion times in a single month. More than 100 million short video clips with very small audiences are shared to the net every single day. The vast majority of these non-Hollywood productions actually rely on remixing, because remixing makes it much easier to create. Amateurs take soundtracks found online, or recorded in their bedrooms, cut and reorder the scenes, enter in text, and then layer it in a new story or novel point of view. Remixing of commercials is rampant. 
Each genre often follows a set format. The mashup, the habit of the mashup, is actually borrowed from textual literacy. You cut and paste words on a page. You quote verbatim from an expert. You paraphrase a lovely expression. You add a layer of detail found elsewhere. You borrow the structure from one work to use as your own. You move frames around as though they're phrases. Now you're going to perform all these literary actions on moving images in a new visual language. In the great hive mind of image creation, something awesome is already happening with still photographs. Every single minute, thousands of photographers are uploading their latest photos on websites such as Instagram, Snapchat, WhatsApp, Facebook, and Flickr. The more than 1.5 trillion photos posted so far cover any subject you can imagine. Kelly says he hasn't been able to stump the sites with an image request that can't be found yet. Flickr offers more than half a million images of the Golden Gate Bridge alone. Every conceivable angle, lighting condition, and point of view of the Golden Gate Bridge has already been photographed and posted. If you want to use an image of the bridge in your video or movie, there's really no reason to take a new photo of the bridge. It's already been done. All you need is a really easy way to find it. For example, once you have a large text document, you need a table of contents to find your way through it. That requires page numbers, which somebody invented in the 13th century. What's the equivalent in video? Longer texts require an alphabetic index devised by the Greeks and later developed for the library of books. Someday soon with AI, we'll have a way to index the full content of film. Footnotes, invented in the 12th century, allowed tangential information to be displayed outside the linear argument of main text. That would be extremely useful in video. And bibliographic citations enabled scholars and skeptics to systematically consult sources that influenced or clarify the content. Imagine a video with citations. These days, of course, we have hyperlinks which connect one piece of text to another, and tags which categorize using a selected word or phrase for later sorting. If text literacy meant being able to parse and manipulate text, then the new media fluency means being able to parse and manipulate moving images with the same ease. We do not have the equivalent of a hyperlink for film just yet. With true screen fluency, I'd be able to cite specific frames of a film, or even specific items in a frame. I should be able to annotate with any object, frame, or scene in a motion picture with any other object, frame, or motion picture clip. I should be able to search the visual index of a film or peruse the visual table of contents or scan a visual abstract of its full length. But how do you do all these? How do we browse a film the way we browse a book? Some popular websites with huge selections of movies, like porn sites, have devised a way for users to scan through content of full movies quickly in a few seconds. When you click on a title of a movie, the window skips from one keyframe to the next, making a rapid slideshow, like a flipbook of the movie. The abbreviated slideshow visually summarizes a few hour films in a few seconds. Expert software can be used to identify the keyframes in a film in order to maximize the effectiveness of the summary. The holy grail of visuality is findability. This is the ability to search the library of all movies the same way that Google can search the web and find a particular focus deep within. You want to be able to type key terms or just simply say bicycle plus dog and then retrieve scenes in any film featuring a dog and a bicycle. In an instant you could locate the moment in The Wizard of Oz when the witchy Miss Gulch rides off with Toto. Even better, you want to be able to ask Google to find all the other scenes in all movies similar to that scene. The ability is almost here. Google's Cloud AI is gaining a visual intelligence rapidly. 
Its ability to recognize and remember every object in the billions of personal snapshots that people like me have uploaded is simply uncanny. Give it a picture of a boy riding a motorcycle on a dirt road and the AI can label it, boy riding motorcycle on a dirt road. It captions one photo, two pizzas on a stove, which was exactly what I had. I've had photo, I have Google create for me every single day entire videos, movies that are remixes of all of my photos and images and social media feeds from previous days. And then it con it labels them for me. I have a couple of videos on my phone that I never created that are compilations of all of the individual subclips of my cats for the past three months that I've had them. These are videos that were created, and the caption was Solana and Kalani, which are the names of my cats, day at play. And it was, I'm just blown away by the abilities of Google to process information and to label it movies and text as well as remix using the assistant. Now we need to start exploring the real finite opportunities within the realm of moving images. Fei-Fei Li, the director of Sanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, says, I consider pixel data in images and video to be the dark matter of the internet. We are now starting to illuminate it. My interpretation of Fei-Fei Li is that this pixel data is the unknown data similar to what we see in our universe. Dark matter is the stuff that we just don't know what it's made of. We know what matters, but dark matter is just the unknown in the universe, which makes up a majority of the universe. The same is true with our moving image data. Pixel data contains a lot of information that we have yet to tap into. And as Fei-Fei Li says, Stanford Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, we're starting to illuminate that dark matter and that unknown and obscurity. If we go back to VHS and then DVD, later on to TiVos, and now with the streaming video, it makes it trivially easy to scroll back screenworks. This ability to rewind also applies to commercials, news, documentaries, clips, anything online, in fact. More than anything else, rewindability is what has turned commercials into a new art form. The ability to rewatch them has moved them out of the prism of ephemeral glimpses into the middle of the ephemeral shows to a library of shows that can be read and reread like books, and then shared with others, discussed, analyzed, and studied. Music was transformed when it became recordable and rewindable. Games now have scrollback functions that allow replays, redos, extra lives, and related concept. This redo function encourages creativity. As we move forward, anything digital will have undo and rewindability as well as remixing. As we begin to lifelog our daily activities to capture our live streams, more of our lives will be scrollable. In the near future, we'll have the option to record as much of our conversations as we care to. It's going to cost nothing as long as we carry or wear a device and it'll be fairly easy to rewind. While some private conversations will likely remain off-limits, more and more of what happens in public will be corded and reviewable via phone cams, dashboard-mounted webcams on every car, and streetlight-mounted surveillance cams. Police are going to be required by law to record all activity from wearables while they're on duty. Rewinding police logs will shift public opinion, just as often vindicating police as not. The everyday routines of politicians and celebrities will be subject to scrolling back and from multiple viewpoints, creating a new culture where everyone's past is recallable. This creates a conundrum. If a melody is a piece of property you own, like your house, then my right to use it without permission or compensation is very limited. But digital bits are notoriously non-tangible and non-rival. Bits are closer to ideas than to real estate. As far back as 1813, Thomas Jefferson understood that ideas were not really property or if they were property, they differed from real estate. He wrote, Thomas Jefferson, he who receives an idea from me 
receives instruction himself without lessening mine, and he who lights his taper at mine receives light without darkening mine. If Jefferson gave you his house in Monticello, you would have his house and he would not have that house. But if he gives you an idea, you'd have that idea and he'd still have the idea. That weirdness is the source of our uncertainty about intellectual property today. It's difficult to sort out how ownership works in a realm where ownership is less important. How does one own a melody? When you give me a melody, you will have it, yet in what way is it even yours to begin with if it is one note different from a similar melody a thousand years ago? Can one own a note? If you sell me a copy of it, what counts as a copy? What about a backup or one that streams by? These are not esoteric theoretical questions. Music is one of the major exports of the United States, a multi-billion dollar industry. And the dilemma of what aspect of intangible music can be owned and how it can be remixed is at the front and center of culture today. There are many aspects of contemporary intellectual property laws that are out of whack with the reality of how the underlying technology works. For instance, US copyright law gives a temporary monopoly to a creator for his or her creation in order to encourage further creation. In many cases, this unproductive temporary monopoly is a hundred years long and is still being extended longer and is thus not temporary at all. In a world running at internet speed, a century-long legal lockup is a serious detriment to innovation and creativity. It's a vestigial burden from a former era based on atoms. The entire global economy is tipping away from the material and towards intangible bits. It's moving away from ownership and towards access. It's tilting away from the value of copies and towards the value of networks. It's headed for the inevitability of constant, relentless, and increasing remixing. The laws are going to be slow to follow, but they will follow. As the economists Romer and Arthur remind us, recombination is really the only source of innovation and wealth. Kevin Kelly suggests that we follow the question, has it been transformed by the borrower? Did the remixing, the mashup, the sampling and the appropriation, the borrowing, did it transform the original rather than just copy it? Did Andy Warhol transform the Campbell soup can? If yes, then the derivative is not really a copy. It's been transformed, mutated, improved, and evolved. The answer each time is still a judgment call, but the question of whether it has been transformed is the right question to ask. Nothing can remain untouched and unaltered. By that, what Kelly means is that every creation that has ever had any value will eventually and inevitably be transformed, in some version, into something different. Sure, the version of Harry Potter that J.K. Rowling published in 1997 is always going to be available. But it's inevitable that another thousand fanfiction versions of her book are going to be penned by avid amateurs in the coming decades. The more powerful the invention or creation, the more likely and more important it is that it will be transformed by others. In 30 years, the most important cultural works in the most powerful mediums will be those that have been remixed the most. Thanks for joining me today to talk about remixing. Tomorrow, join me for part 9, Interacting.